Thanks for pressing play. If you're a longtime listener, you know that we do not have very many celebrities on Fall Year Different. And candidly, we take a pass on most of them because, frankly, uh, they're not that interesting. Today, however, our guest is not your typical celebrity or Hollywood type. Moby is a breakout musician, DJ, and songwriter. He sold over 20 million records worldwide. And he is credited with helping to bring electronic dance music to a mainstream global audience. And of course, you know his song Extreme Ways is the theme song to the Jason Bourne movies. Moby is an animal advocate and a deeply committed vegan. And he's got a brand new cookbook out. It's based on the recipes from a restaurant that he founded a while ago called Little Pine. And the book's called The Little Pine Cookbook, Modern Plant-Based Comfort. Now, what you're about to hear is a real dialogue like none other. From Moby's tough start in life to making it, breaking it, and having it all fall apart, then building yourself back up again, and how to dedicate your life to something bigger than you. Never mind some incredible stories about Moby meeting his heroes, including what it was like to hang out with none other than David Bowie. This is Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine calls us the best business podcast, and one podcast reviewer says, and I quote, it sucks. No matter what you call us, if you love real dialogues with the legendary people who are making our world a different place, then you are in the right place. Our friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first whole plant organic flax milk created by a mom. So if you want to try whole plant milk that's tasty and awesome, check out Malibu Milk with a Y.com or Amazon.com or check out your local grocery store and ask them for Malibu Milk. My friends at Hallow App have created the world's first real relationship app because it's time to get real in our digital life from the makers of WhatsApp, Hallow App, H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Moby, it sure is great to meet you. Thanks for uh, cutting uh, out some time for me. My pleasure. Now, um, I must tell you, I love the new record, Reprise. And I'm curious to find out why you wanted to uh, do a cover of Bowie's Heroes. Well, for a few reasons. First and foremost is I think that it is arguably one of the most beautiful songs ever written and recorded. And to put it in a little personal context, the first job I ever had when I was around 12 years old was working as a caddy at a golf course in Connecticut. And I only worked as a caddy long enough to save money to buy two David Bowie albums. Like once I had enough money to buy my two David Bowie albums, I quit being a caddy, which was good because I was little. And as a result, I was a terrible caddy. And also I knew nothing about golf. So I bought these two David Bowie albums and he became my favorite musician of all time. And then in the late 90s, we became friends and then we were neighbors and we went on tour together. We worked on music together. We spent holidays together. And we had this one amazing day where he was in my apartment on Mott Street in New York and we played an acoustic version of Heroes together. And it was such a 
magical moment that the version of Heroes that's on reprise is sort of a tribute to the song, a tribute to the fact that I was friends with my favorite musician of all time, and a tribute to this moment of playing Heroes with the greatest musician of all time on my sofa. Well, you just made me love the cover of yours 100x more, although I came in loving it. That's an incredible story. And, you know, we often hear this thing about, oh, don't meet your heroes because you're going to be disappointed. It doesn't sound like Bowie disappointed you. No, I mean, I when I was growing up, I never expected to have a career as a musician. I thought I was going to be a philosophy professor at a community college, which would have been fine. But that was sort of my my career path was leading towards that. And I thought I would spend my entire life making music that no one ever paid attention to. Um, and I certainly never thought that I would have the opportunity to meet my heroes, no pun intended. And I certainly never thought I would have the opportunity to meet David Bowie and become friends with him. And you're absolutely right. I have had that experience as I'm sure you have and other people have had as well. When you meet your heroes, sometimes it's very disappointing, you know, and sometimes it's better to just enjoy their work and not know them as a human being. But in David Bowie's case, he was such a wonderful person. It actually made me love his music more. Wow. That's hard to believe given uh, how much I'm sure you love his music. And I mean, of course, so many of us have for so long. I'm curious, what's something uh, maybe you could share with me about David Bowie that maybe I, I, as a fan, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't know from just listening to his music for all these years? Well, one facet of David Willard. I, okay, I'll share two things. One is he was really funny. And if you go back and look at his work and watch the videos, like rarely do you see the, the comedic side of David Bowie. But in person, he was very lighthearted and funny. Um, I remember I had this one dinner at his apartment with him and Lou Reed. And David was just in very rare form. So he was like, basically just being a stand-up comedian. And so he was really funny. But the other wonderful facet of David Bowie that I think a lot of people might not be aware of was how unrelentingly enthusiastic he was about so many different things. You know, his enthusiasm for art, for music, for politics, for ideas, for people, for creative movements. Like he just had this really sort of like passionate, innocent enthusiasm. Hmm. Fascinating. And did, did he have a sense, this may sound like a crazy question, but did he, he know he was David Bowie, if you know what I mean? Yeah, he did. My, the sense I got, I mean, he, when you are that iconic and when you've been that iconic for such a long time, you know, I mean, I don't know if it necessarily affected how he perceived himself in private, but certainly when you leave your apartment and everyone you encounter treats you like a demigod, it's bound to affect you. Right. I remember we had uh, Muhammad Ali's agent on a while ago, and he said, you've never seen anything until you've tried to walk a city block with Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, the last hundred years, if not even going back further, but especially the last hundred years has given us these these icons and yeah i mean i you know as someone who's had a limited experience of that i can say it definitely 
can be a very corrupting influence. Like, you know, everyone in the world wants to be a legendary public figure, but being a public figure, I think it definitely is more stress than it's worth. Now, it's interesting that you say that because I'm sure you've seen a lot of the same things that I've seen where surveys show today that younger folks, the number one thing they want to be is famous. Um, but then when I read, uh, then it fell apart. It, it almost, and if I'm misinterpreting what you want us to take, by all means, educate me, but it almost feels like a, um, a, a guide to why you don't want to be famous or something along those lines. That is a, a huge facet of the book. Um, and I also just released a documentary called Moby Doc, which hopefully is not just an exercise in narcissism, but rather it's, and I'm going to try and say this in a way that doesn't make me sound too pretentious. I mean, I accept that I already sound kind of pretentious or very pretentious, but I'll try and like rein it in a little bit. Uh, so the idea is that in, and, and if this sounds platitudinal or too weird, I don't know. But the, the idea is that the human condition is one of confusion. You know, as long as we're human, we're baffled. Because, you know, the two defining aspects of who we are as humans, one is that eventually we all die. And two, that we exist in an ancient, vast, unknowable universe. You know, and so those two facts that we die and we know nothing about what happens after we die and we know nothing about our place in the universe just leads us to be baffled. And I would say a third fact that we have inherited just abject fear from the monkeys and the terrified primates we are descended from. So it seems like we all gravitate towards things that give us a sense of meaning, structure, status and uh so the the book then fell apart and moby doc is sort of looking at that like how i you know had my own individual experience of bafflement and my human experience of bafflement and how i tried to find anything that would give me that sense of you know meaning purpose status comfort what have you and all it takes is a sort of cursory empiricalist look at uh you know the things that we tend to use that we try to give ourselves purpose and meaning and happiness with and we realize like oh well fame destroys people's lives wealth there's nothing wrong with wealth but wealth is not going to fix the human condition and status uh power all of these things more often than not you know corrupt people so you know, that's, I tried to use my story as a way of sort of sharing my experience with people. Well, and it's, um, I mean, it reads, it reads like, um, like a movie, frankly. Um, and, in, it, and so I guess my question in that regard, Moby, is how much of your life as you look back on it, and of course I want to talk about going forward, but as you look back on it, does, does it feel like you led some rock star life or, or, or how does it feel to you? Uh, you know, it's it's funny. Um, I mean, I guess we all have, and this is going to be very self-evident, but, you know, we all have both clueless and unique perspectives on our own lives. Um, 
And I have had, and it's the reason why I've written these books and made this movie, I've just had a weird life. You know, I grew up with incredible poverty and abuse and confusion. And as I said, I, I thought I was going to be a, a community college professor, which again, wouldn't, I don't want to malign professors, teachers, community college employees, because it's great, but that's, it's not what my path ended up taking me on. So having experienced extreme poverty, degrees of wealth, fame, etc., it's just given me a perspective that is so odd and was so unexpected. Like, I feel like some people, when they're growing up, they have ambitions to, you know, to, to go out and achieve something, you know, and when they do achieve it, they feel maybe a sense of accomplishment. And I just sort of like stumbled almost like a Dickensian character, like stumbled from one situation into another. And luckily it's given me a perspective that I think has some best case scenario has enabled me to have some insight. Yes. Now, I'm curious, you and I share more than a hairdo. Um, I also grew up um, uh, in, let's call it, modest means, and I'm, a, I'm the product of a spectacular and loving single mom. And I'm just curious, you know, sort of if I put my Freud on with you a little bit, how informative of that kind of an upbringing for you was your drive to have the kind of eclectic life that you've had? I was a, a huge driving force. I mean, growing up feeling constantly inadequate, you know, I'm talking like when I was a child, you know, like I was ashamed of being poor. I was ashamed of my family life. You know, I felt so inadequate because I also grew up in one of the wealthiest towns in the United States, if not the world, Darien, Connecticut. So I was poor white trash in the wealthiest town in the world, which definitely compounded the sense of shame and inadequacy that I had. And so I found myself, you know, gravitating towards anything that would help me move past that feeling of shame and inadequacy. Uh, and again, as I tried to show in the books and the movie, like, well, using alcohol and drugs and external validation, not surprisingly, did not fix the, you know, the sort of broken aspects of who I was when I was a child. So when the record breaks some number or has been on the charts for some amount of time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as amazing as that is, and maybe we could talk a little bit about some of that stuff, but it doesn't fix, not to sound corny, but it doesn't fix what's broken inside the little boy, does it? I mean, if it did, Donald Trump and Kanye West would be the two happiest people on the planet. <laughs> and you know, you're suggesting like clearly, they're not? Like, it's, it'd be one thing, and if, 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 if my experience was somehow completely unique to me, I probably would never have written a book or made this movie or even talked about my experience. I would just say like, wow, you know, I tried using fame and external validation, et cetera, to give my, you know, to give me a sense of meaning and, and, and validation. And if, every, if it worked for everyone else, I would say, by all means, everybody else, keep doing what you're doing because clearly it's working. But we look at the world and you realize, like, clearly it's not working. You know, like, clearly 
the people who've oftentimes reached the pinnacle of, you know, fame, wealth, success, like they're some of the least happy people on the planet. And I think you and I can both attest to that because we've spent a lot of time with those people. And like, it's rare to meet a very, you know, successful, affluent person who's actually comfortable in their skin, doesn't feel the need to overcompensate and wakes up feeling pretty happy on a day-to-day basis. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? And I was reflecting on this uh, earlier in the year when both um, uh, Melinda Gates and Bill Gates broke up and McKinsey Scott and Jeff Bezos broke up. And the thing that struck me was sort of, the th- I think, the thread you're on, which is, wow, here are arguably two of the most, if not the two most powerful couple, couples that ever lived. They have every resource you could possibly imagine. They're clearly both super smart, or they're all super smart, and these are not dumb people. And yet with all the money in the world and all the intelligence in the world, unfortunately, their marriages couldn't continue. And it was just, it was an interesting eye-opener, I thought. Well, I think, yeah, it was at, without question. And um, I remember when I was living in New York, because I live in LA now, uh, when I lived in New York and I was bottoming out as an alcoholic and a drug addict, I was spending a lot of time going to very fancy events. You know, the Met Gala, the you know fundraiser for the Museum of the City of New York, New York Public Library events, and you know this was you know the wealthiest, most accomplished people on the planet, and these events were joyless. And I had this sort of like hungover realization one day. I was like, wow. You know, if wealth and fame and everything made people happy, the Upper East Side of New York, there'd be no divorce lawyers. There'd be no therapists. It would just be people running around playing games with their friends and their dogs. You (laughs) know, and and the fact that like you could almost have this sort of like this correlation curve. I'm sure there's some fancy math term for it, which shows that like, you know, the the parts of the world that are the most affluent are also the parts of the world with like the highest numbers of therapists, psychiatrists, divorce lawyers, etc. Like, but yet, as you mentioned, like all we're like so many successful people are so erudite and so educated, but they keep buying into the same fallacy, you know. And then once they've bought into it, it's like almost impossible for anyone to walk away from it. Like, you know, so that's why you have, you know, you go to a party and there's, you know, 70, 80 year old billionaires joylessly hanging out with their fifth wife. And you you just want to say like, why did you keep doing it if it never worked? Yeah. And their kids are in therapy and on Zoloft and whatever, whatever, right? (laughs) Everybody's fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had a a friend of mine had this experience and I'm going to try and cloud the story so like no one can figure out who I'm talking about um, because I don't need more trouble in life. But so a friend of mine who was raised, who was the child of one of these billionaires um, was at his new hat, her dad's new house. And she went for a swim. And after going for a swim, she left the, the wet towel on a chair by the pool and then one of the assistants called her and said, um, could you please go back and pick up your towel? Your dad doesn't want to see uh, wet towels by the pool. Now, if that's not a sign of 
like wealth and fame clearly not making people happy. I don't know what it's like. You've <laughs> built a pool and your child has enjoyed the pool. And the only thing you can focus on is that the wet towel is screwing up your brand new pool. <laughs> we have our, we have our head on uh, the wrong way. And it was interesting. You know, I just recently read an interview with Cameron Diaz. I guess she's not been, um, visible for quite some time now. And she was talking about why she sort of wanted to have a normal life. And one of the things she said I found interesting was she wanted to have a day where she alone could handle all the things in her day. That is to say, she, she didn't have to ha have all these handlers and sh all these people who depended on her and all that. And, and, and you think, man, you must be pretty far off your moorings. If you have to have your assistant, tell your kid, you don't like the towel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, so when, when I moved to L.A., um, I I was in the process of hiring a new assistant. Um, and what's funny is with the, the assistant that I have, I actually do all the garbage stuff. Like, you know, I do the laundry, I clean the house, I do the grocery shopping. My assistant actually does the fun, fancy stuff. But when I moved here, I was interviewing people to be possible assistants. And it was so entertaining because I got to ask all these people the worst experiences they'd had with former bosses. <laughs> and it was just, it, it almost makes me want, like if I, if I was really unethical, I would just like for entertainment interview former assistants of, of high profile people just because their stories are phenomenal. You know, that would be a legendary podcast. Yeah, that would be if I mean, unfortunately, they all sign NDAs so they are not allowed to tell the stories. But one of my favorites was this one poor guy. I was interviewing him and I asked him, like, to tell, I said, just tell me a terrible story involving your ex boss. And apparently this poor assistant had worked almost like every day straight for three weeks, you know, 10, 12 hours a day and finally had a night off. And was going on a date. And his boss called him at 9 p.m. and said, there's no ice cream in my freezer. And the assistant said, well, you know, I'm actually, actually heading out on a date. This is my first night off in three weeks. And the boss screamed at him and said, if you want to keep your fucking job, you will have ice cream in my freezer in the next 25 minutes. <laughs> oh, so, fuck. Yeah. Human beings are insane. Yes. And so, and you sort of seem to have lived some of this in public. Uh, you seem to be a pretty open guy. And so how do you create a life where you can have a creative life, you can, you can be successful as you have been, um, and, and yet you can stay grounded and not turn into an asshole who's screaming at their assistant about the ice cream? Well, the... I mean, I don't know if it's a product of upbringing. You know, I was raised by, you know, insane, but very sort of like bright people who, you know, sort of instilled in me, you know, to an extent, the ability to think clearly. And then being, you know, when I studied philosophy at university, um, you know, when it comes to like debating philosophy in an academic setting, you can never say, oh, I feel this way or I, I just think it should be this way. Like everything has to be logical and, you know, hold up to like really rigorous scrutiny. But also there's the thing that, that 
I would say arguably humans hate more than anything else is the willingness to look at evidence. Well, especially if the evidence um, uh, invalidates my point of view in some way, right? <laughs> yeah, or if the, if the evidence challenges or like draws attention to some, you know, like flawed thinking. Um, but I think in my case, I just, I, I didn't, like most people, I never wanted to look at the evidence, but the evidence became so overwhelming. Like, you know, that's what led me to get sober. You know, like I was so hungover every day and I couldn't have relationships and I was alienating my friendships and I was depressed and I was anxious and miserable and sick. And it took me years to finally look at that evidence and say, oh, simply this isn't working. You know, and it's such a hard thing for all of us to do is to, you know, whether it's a relationship, a job, an existential worldview, an addiction, uh, even our relationship to animals and the environment. Like people really don't want to look at at evidence. And um, I'd say, but ultimately evidence is kind of what saves me. Like that 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 unwillingness, but ultimate acceptance that I had to look at actual evidence. And what was the evidence that you saw that made you say, maybe this is not what I want to be doing? Well, regarding, I mean, as I said, regarding alcohol and drugs, it just made me realize like, oh, the, all evidence points to the fact that I'm an old-timey alcoholic drug addict and I need to stop. Um, but regarding, you know, what we keep coming back to, you know, whether it's fame, um, affluence, I basically suddenly was willing to look at the evidence. I was like, okay, is fame making me happy? And the answer was, well, no, not really. But the pursuit of fame was making me miserable. And then I looked around me and I said, is fame making anyone happy? And I immediately thought of Kurt Cobain and John Lennon. Uh, then later, Robin Williams, Anthony Bourdain, going back to Ernest Hemingway. I mean, like I was like, oh, fame just actually shortens people's lives and makes them miserable. And I looked at the compromises I was making to pursue or maintain fame. And every single one of them was contrary to everything that I value and hold dear. And I just realized like, okay, as seductive as the pursuit of fame can be, I need to move past this. Like I need to sort of be willing to look at like, what am I trying to fix with fame? And does it, does it actually need fixing? And what's a better way to fix it as opposed to pursuing the validation that comes from the love of strangers? Hmm. Fascinating. And what's your relationship with booze and drugs today? Oh, I, I have to practice complete abstinence. I don't think there's anything wrong with alcohol and drugs. I just think I can't do them. You know, like I'm not judgmental. What other people choose to do is completely their choice. And, and the majority of people can drink and do drugs in a really sort of like benign-ish way. Uh, I was just not one of those people. I was, you know, for whatever reason, just a, a crazy addict. Interesting. Now, you know, you're talking about success and fame and these things. Much of what we hear in this sort of self-help world, in the business entrepreneur world that I grew up in, 
is a lot of literature around how to become successful, how to build a great company, how to get famous, how to do great work and, you know, make money, whatever the thing is. But it's all about sort of how to get to some place. Um, you got to that place and then some. And what we hear very little about is, okay, so you got to the top of the mountain and then you got to the top of a whole bunch of other mountains. Uh, you've done pretty great for a guy who grew up poor with a single mom, but sort of, and now what? And so I'm, I'm very curious, sort of what motivates you now having ticked a whole set of boxes that most people will, will never uh, get a chance to tick? Well, what motivates me largely is something that really annoyed me when I first got sober. When I first got sober, I was told two things um, by the people I got, people in my sobriety community. I was told that like, basically, the, the best life is one where you, know, you aspire to lead a spiritual life. And also the best life is one where you aspire to be of service. And I hated those ideas. I remember being told both of those things. And I was so <laughs> irritated by them. So I was like, no, absolutely not. Like the best life is one of selfishness and materialism. I would not have said that in those terms, but. <laughs> hey, we want I, chicks and cars and shit, right? <laughs> yeah. And I want like, I want stuff and I want the world to bend to my will. And I want, you know, like, and I was genuinely scared and annoyed by the idea of spirituality and service. Um, I remember even reading a book by the Dalai Lama, and he talked about how true happiness is found in service. And I was really annoyed with the Dalai Lama. I was like, no, I don't want to be a service. I want to be selfish. But as time has passed, I have actually found that like, by focusing on you know, whatever you want to call it, spirituality, God, the universe, you know, the complexity of quantum mechanics and biology and chemistry. Like to me, that's a huge part of my, what I'll think of as sort of like my degree of grounded happiness because it's contextualized because it's, it's, it's not based on an erroneous view of the world in which we live. Um, it's based on a shifting and complicated view of the world in which we live, but it's not based on crass materialism. Hmm. And again, there's nothing wrong with materialism, but materialism doesn't fix existential issues. And then the other aspect is service, you know, is the idea of trying to be of service to, you know, causes that are bigger than me. And the more I've sort of focused on these two things of, for lack of a better word, spirituality and service, the more grounded I feel, the, you know, the happier I feel. But also, I think, oddly enough, my goal is not necessarily pursuing happy happiness. It's pursuing, it's trying to be of service and trying to understand things better. And so it sounds like a bit of a 180. It definitely is. I mean... <laughs> If someone, you know, before I got sober, I was going out every night and I was trying to be, you know, like I was dating a whole bunch of people and trying to tour constantly and trying to be famous. And I had a publicist so I could be, you know, in more magazines. And if someone described my life now, 
to me back then, I would have just been appalled, you know, because my life now is so simple. Um, you know, I wake up at 5.30 in the morning. I go hiking. I lead this very simple life. I certainly don't date. I don't, I rarely go out and socialize. And I'm so much happier with this almost quasi-monastic existence than I was with the sybaritic life I had 15 years ago. I remember, I forget what context you said it in, because I've been soaking in so much Moby lately, but it seems like recently you said something about like, I'm just a guy who sits in my bedroom and makes music or something along those lines. Am I remembering this right? Oh, well, most of my life as a musician has been spent working on music in my bedroom. You know, like I've always had a studio in a very small space, you know, oftentimes literally in my bedroom, like for many, 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 many decades, my bed was next to my studio and it was great because that way I could just work all the time. Uh, the house I'm in now, my studio is in the center of my house and it's very small and very humble, but it's actually not my bedroom. Uh, I guess I've grown up and been able to move to a separate bedroom. But yeah, having a, a small, humble workspace at home, whether in my bedroom or next to my bedroom, has always served me really well. It's fascinating to hear you say that because, of course, one of the things that you were known for was that giant castle that you owned for a time. Yeah. Uh, and I remember when I lived there in this this crazy castle, I had my studio in the guest house and it didn't work. I was like, that was my main, one of my main issues was living in this crazy castle was that my workspace was, you know, a few hundred yards away from the main house. And that really, it, it made me feel, you know, like definitely gave me sort of like, um, I don't know, separation issues or attachment issues. Uh, <laughs> and so when I moved into the much smaller house I'm in now, one of the first things I did was make sure that the studio is in the middle of the house. And it seems like uh, you've gone through a process of shedding a bunch of material things over the last handful of years. Am I, am I sort of getting that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I like having some stuff, you know, but generally speaking, I had a lot of unnecessary things. Um, I mean, even in regarding music, like I had thousands and thousands of pieces of vinyl and storage lockers filled with equipment. And so what I did a few years ago was I sold all my vinyl and almost all of my equipment, you know, basically any equipment I hadn't used in the last six months. And I sold it all and just gave the money to a, uh, a charity that I work with. Cause I realized keeping equipment in storage or keeping vinyl on a shelf and never playing it benefits no one. And if I sell it, then someone gets to enjoy the vinyl or enjoy the equipment. And this charity gets to enjoy the money. And the sentimental value around those records or around that board that you recorded the whatever on or did the I don't know what and all that, you just were able to walk away from that. I almost I forced myself to be able to do so. Uh, it was an interesting you could almost say it's like an entropic challenge, like a challenge of entropy. Because oftentimes, like the hard things that we do are things that require a lot of effort. You know, like my friend Dan had, he rode bikes across the Sahara Desert. <laughs> and I was like, that's a, that's a, 
that's a non-entropic challenge. You know, there's no entropy in riding a bike across the Sahara Desert. Whereas getting rid of stuff is actually, you could say it's entropy. Like I'm moving to a lower energy state as opposed to maintaining this stuff. And so the, the challenge was purely psychological. And of course, regarding the vinyl, like, I mean, I was, you know, I, I had a bunch of my mom's old records and she's been dead for 20 years and those albums were all gone. You know, the first records I ever bought that the, the David Bowie records, I saved up money to buy when I was 12 years old, all sold. And so it's kind of a, an interesting challenge to shed and, and almost to, to look at my reaction you know, and look at the attachment, look at the wistfulness and rather to observe it rather than to fully be controlled by it, if that makes any sense. No, it's it's very interesting. You know, there's this great line from Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol, where when um, uh, Scrooge is visited by his partner, Jacob Marley, Marley says to him, Scrooge, in life, we forge the chains that bind us. And stuff can become chain-like. And it's an amazing thing when you can give away your David Bowie records. Yeah, it, it felt it felt like a very, like I felt much lighter after doing this. Also, because it wasn't arbitrary. You know, the fact that the money was going to this organization I love, um, the fact that I then had to spend less money maintaining these storage lockers. So it was, it was so practical that it was it, it would have been weird and arbitrary to hold on to a few unnecessary pieces of wreck, you know, pieces of vinyl. Fascinating. And I'm I'm curious what if anything or how how if in any way sort of shedding some of those uh physical or analog belongings, so to speak, um has affected your creative process. Well, I want to have a grand or insightful answer, but the truth is it hasn't really affected creativity that much because, as I mentioned, part of my criteria for determining what was going to be shed or sold was that I it had to be equipment that I hadn't played in six months. Um, and the vinyl, I never played vinyl anyway. So really, it just, the stuff was... It's a fascinating thing when you take, you know, thousands of pieces of vinyl and all this equipment that you spent a lifetime accumulating and you get rid of it and you don't notice it. <laughs> like it's sort of like you sometimes think, okay, well, shouldn't the shouldn't the absence of something have physical consequences? In this case, it was just gone. Yes. Um, and it's I'm sure that there is some opportunity for like wisdom and insight there. I just don't know what it is. Well, I mean, maybe at a minimum, it's a, it's, it's a mind fuck when you realize that all this stuff to the the point we were on earlier, isn't really improving your life. Isn't making you happy. And so if if it's equipment you're not using, then you don't need that stuff. But uh, you know, there are TV shows made about people who won't get rid of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess there's people feel like they, they maybe have some sense of obligation to have more stuff, 
to, you know, to fill their lives with more things. But like, again, this is going back to the idea of like incorporating evidence as a process by which you assess the things in your life. And, you know, those times in my life when I had huge homes filled with stuff, I wasn't terribly happy, Hmm. you know? Um, and, And so then if, if something isn't working, if something isn't making you happy and getting rid of it has the ability to make you happy and to also be of service, then why not just get rid of it? It's logical, but uh, as we talked about about the human condition, human beings are often not logical. <laughs> yeah, we're we're definitely like I said, like you know, like we we hate evidence more than basically anything. Like nothing will get you crucified faster than drawing people's attention to actual evidence. <laughs> yes, we're living in a post fact world. Now, I'm curious how you think about music today, how, how you've been creating music over the last particularly year and a half or so during the pandemic and sort of what you're thinking about musically now. Uh, well, about, let me think, 20 years ago, I got involved with this organization started by Oliver Sacks. I don't know if you are familiar with Oliver Sacks. No, I'm not. So he's a neurologist. He, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a neurologist who did a lot of work with you know the way in which music actually affects us physiologically, neurochemically. The movie Awakenings with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams was based on him. I see. I remember that movie well. And uh, I've had some some folks who work in the in the in that field on the podcast. So I, I get a sense of what you're talking okay, about. Okay, yeah. So you're familiar. So the music therapy side of things, he started an organization in New York called the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. And I started working with them. And I was suddenly able to see, because up until that point, like I dedicated my life to music, but I'd never really thought about it. I just knew that I loved it and that it was my job. And I was lucky to spend my time working on something that I loved. But in working with this, this institute, I started realizing the truly, and again, I don't want to sound too much like a hippie, but the, the truly phenomenal power that music has when the truth is it has never actually existed. And when I say that, I'm not being glib. I mean that music has never existed. Music is just air molecules moving a little bit differently. So like music has, no one has ever created music. What they've done is moved air molecules that already existed a little bit differently. And the fact that by moving air molecules, you can make people dance and cry and cut their hair and stand in a field with 100,000 people and jump up and down. Um, You know, the fact that music gets played at baptisms and funerals and like, Every religious rite on the planet involves music for the most part. And having that realization, like this powerful force that will give most people some of the most profound emotional experiences of their life has never actually existed, that it's just air molecules touching us a little bit differently, really changed my thinking around music. And I stopped thinking of it as a commercial process, or I stopped thinking of music as a product, which also happened around the time when, largely speaking, music stopped being commercial and stopped being a product. And 
so to your question, these days, I think of music as something like it's a spiritual process or a spiritual practice that I guess is sort of my job. Like I try very hard to not think of music as my job. Technically, I guess it is, but like to me, it's, it's just something that gives me joy and it enables me to spend time moving air molecules around and seeing what happens. Hmm. So fascinating. Did you just call music a spiritual practice movie? Uh, I mean, at the risk of sounding like a hippie who lives in California. Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. So we've come a long way from being mad at the Dalai Lama about that kind of shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, to me, I did, I, I have a degree of guilt around music because when I work on it, it feels selfish. Like I get so much joy out of it that I almost feel like the need to apologize. Like, I'm like, how, how is it possible that like I'm working on music and if anyone listens to it, that's great. I'm perfectly happy for people to listen to it. If they don't listen to it, of course, that's fine too. But the act of making it and being in my studio by myself or working with other musicians, it's just such a joyful process, even if it's sad music, that I... Yeah, I do feel this sort of lingering guilt around it. Like, you know, maybe that's the residual aspect of being, you know, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant of Calvin descent. We're like, we're bound to feel guilty about anything that makes us happy. Like, who am I that I get to do this when, you know, people are dying in Afghanistan? Yeah. That kind of guilty? Yeah. And, and guilt around, like, who am I to spend my time doing this when I could be out trying to save the world? And then, of course, that little self-involved voice says, well, maybe, you know, you're making music, maybe it'll reach people and that will help improve the world. I mean, that sounds so presumptuous. So I try not to take that thought too seriously. But, you know, I, I don't think it is presumptuous. You know, we started off talking about David Bowie heroes and that song has spoken to me from the first time I've heard it. Uh, I loved your cover of it. I love, I don't know if you've heard this one, uh, Motorhead kind of has a punky cover of it that I also love. And so, you know, and that's one example, I could give you many others of songs that I love and I'm not, of course, a professional musician. And so I think music, you know, when I listen to Frank Sinatra, well, Frank Sinatra is a transportation to my grandfather and I'll never meet Frank or be able to thank him. But not only do I enjoy the music, but when I hear Frank Sinatra, I'm with my grandfather. So I think it is powerful, important shit. Yeah, I if if I wasn't a musician, it would be much easier for me to agree with you. The reason that it's hard for me to agree is because if I say that music is important, someone might think I'm saying my music is important. And again, that sounds so self-involved and presumptuous that I'm unwilling to do that. But everything you just said, I completely agree with. And to your question about like thinking differently about music. I've also been thinking lately that it's almost, in a way, a sh not a shame, but I think it's potentially wrong to think of music in the same creative category as other forms of creative expression. And the reason I say that is simply the role that music serves in our lives. You know, like, I love my favorite books and my favorite movies and, you know, favorite paintings even. 
But like my favorite movies, you know, like I love The Godfathers one and two. I've watched each one of them four times. I probably never need to watch them again. Right, right. Unless some moment strikes you that you want to see them, but it's not part of yeah. your life, right? In a, on an ongoing basis. As opposed to my favorite pieces of music, I've listened to thousands of times and I don't get tired of them. And that, there's no other, there's no other form of creative expression that lives in our lives in that way. And um, so it's made me almost, because so we're so used to thinking of like, quote, the arts. Like if you go to the New York Times, they have like the arts section, they have arts and music and literature, and they're all sort of lumped in with each other. And this is not taking away from any other form of creative expression, but music is, is different, I think. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it is a completely different thing. And there are certain songs I was thinking as you were talking, if they come on the radio or somebody's got them playing on their iPhone or whatever, where you just stop everything and just turn that shit up. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and, and so that's partially where my sort of like guilt and gratitude comes from is like, I'm just amazed that I get to spend so much of my life involved in this process, you know, this institution of music that I love so unconditionally. Yeah, it's one of the things for which I'm absolutely most grateful. Now, I remember reading years ago, and you'll correct me if I'm remembering this wrong. I think it was maybe an interview with you in Rolling Stone where you made the, or the, the journalist sort of made the comment that uh, you kept using the expression, oh, that's such a hit, that you had sort of developed, a, you trained yourself to have a real ear around what works and doesn't work in terms of making hit music. Am I remembering this right? Uh, it's possible. I mean, that's definitely like, I, I haven't used the word hit in a very long time. So it might be an old article pre-sobriety where I was actually a little bit more involved in the world of trying to make hits or certainly like talking to people who were involved in like the commercial aspects of music. Um, I mean, I guess the, the, the idea of a hit is quite interesting because I would say that you can have this expanded idea of a hit and um, you know, like Handel's Sarah band is a piece of music that if you, if I, if I ask anyone on the street, do they know Handel's Sarah band? Everyone's like, no, what, what the hell is that? It's a hit. If you listen to it on Spotify, you're like, Oh, you know it. I know that. Um, th the same way that like um, uh, John Lee Hooker, Boogie Chillin was a huge hit record and it was recorded with one microphone and one chord. Like it's just the simplest piece of music. So I'm, it's more that question of how a piece of music can interact with people like both powerfully and on a mass level. And so it's not even commercial. It's just like, how does something, how do people resonate? How does something resonate with people powerfully on a mass level? And I guess the word hit is a cheap way of describing it, but it's interesting if we start looking at like pieces of music that were never quote unquote hits, but, that function in that same way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I consider you, we talked earlier about icons and iconic. I mean, not only have you had hits, but you've also had, you know, what I would consider bigger than hits in the sense that they've become iconic. I mean, the obvious might be extreme ways 
by the way, one of my favorite songs to run along the beach listening to. So thank you for a, a million runs. <laughs> but I'm curious, like, what what is the experience for you as an artist when you have a song become popular and then become a hit and then become iconic and the Bourne films and all of that. And you now have this piece of music that is, you know, truly iconic of an era. Uh, it's very disconcerting because when I was growing up, my assumption, my worldview was such that I was a fan of other people's work. And I never expected anyone to be a fan of my work. I never expected to have an audience for my work. And so it's disconcerting when there's evidence that people are fans of mine or when, you know, the, you know, works that I've made have reached a lot of people. Um, it still challenges that old world view of mine because I really thought I would spend my entire life as a fan of other people's work and that no one would ever hear what I did. So it's very hard for me to process the fact that other people have listened to the music that I've made. Interesting. And then from a live perspective, you know, you hear some artists say, oh, fuck, if I have to play Jumpin' Jack Flash or whatever the song is one more time, I'm going to tear my eyeballs out with a fork. And of course, fans want to hear your iconic stuff. And yes, most fans are interested in some of the new stuff too. But I, I'm just curious how you feel about your music, particularly when you go to craft a live set. Oh, I believe in... The aspiring towards generous populism. You know, I, I mean, I try not to tour because I hate touring, but like if I'm forced to play a live show or if I have to tour, I want to play the songs that the audience wants to hear because I've been the person in the audience. And I, when I'm in the audience, I want to hear the hits. You know, if I go to see Neil Young, I want to hear my 20 favorite Neil Young songs. If you go to see the Rolling Stones, you want to hear all the hits. Like you don't, it's one of the worst things an artist can say on stage is, you know, quote, this is a song from the new record. <laughs> like no, cause you're being very generous when you say like people care about the new songs. It's like, no, largely they don't. And I understand that because when I go see my favorite bands or my favorite artists, if I'm being honest, I don't really care about their new music that much. Maybe I will over time, but like, I mean, I remember recently I saw Paul McCartney play, and this is Paul McCartney, you know, like who wrote Let It Be and Live and Let Die and Hey Jude and Yesterday. I mean, like, you know, Paul, there, there has never been anyone apart from maybe John Lennon who has touched Paul McCartney in stature. And you could tell when he played the new songs, the audience lost interest. Hmm. And so I, I really do think, like, I, like if you're a musician and you want to be completely indulgent and just play the new music, like, do it at home. Yeah. You know, or, or play a tiny show. Like, I did that for my last, like, an, well, not last album, but the album before that. I did these very small shows in L.A. where the first part of the set was songs from the new album. And the second was hits. Um, but the venue held maybe 300, 250 people. So hopefully, and I let people know beforehand that this was going to happen. So like the new music was not going to be just like 
hopefully not too indulgent. <laughs> and we're not going to sneak it in between hits. We're going to break this thing up for you. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, if you don't want to hear the new music, just come later or like, you know, go outside and play games on your phone and come back in when the new music's done. Well, I, as a fan, I appreciate that. I feel the same way you do. And I, I, I'm curious about the new stuff, but I want to hear the reason I'm there. I, I remember years ago, my wife, Carrie, and I went to go see Sting and I think he played for an hour and a half and he might've played two songs we knew. And it was like, what the fuck? I mean, there wasn't a Roxanne or a message in the bottle or not. A, he didn't throw us a bone. As someone who likes going to concerts with involving other musicians, I don't understand that lack of generosity, you know, like, and I guess, uh, and I'm going to try and say this very diplomatically. I probably shouldn't say it at all, but I feel like a lot of musicians forget that like the audience is generally more interested in the music that they love and not the person playing it. That's a big statement, right? And I think that like, you know, the musician sometimes thinks like, oh, they're here for me. It's like, well, no, to an extent, yes, because you wrote those songs that they love. But like most of us, when we go to see a concert, like, you know, sure, we're excited to see Neil Diamond. <laughs> I would be at least. But you want to hear Sweet Caroline. You want to, you know, you want to hear Coming to America. You want to hear the hits because, you know, these are the, you love the music so much more than the musician. It's so interesting you say that. I'm flashing back to the last big show I saw before the pandemic when the Stones came to the Bay Area and I went with my brother-in-laws and they did exactly what you described. I mean, they might have played one or two new ones, but I mean, they played Sympathy for the Devil and Paint It Black and Satisfaction and and you name it. I mean, th there were very uh, there were very few big songs they didn't play and they played for uh, for forever. And as much as we all love Keith and Mick and the boys, and I think many of us music fans do and we're curious about them, et cetera, et cetera. But I kind of want to hear them play Paint It Black more than anything else. Yeah. Yep. But what I will say to that is there's also, when you're, when you're a musician and you're standing in front of an audience and you have the ability to make people happy, why wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, because I will also say as a musician, every musician knows what it's like to play music that the audience doesn't care about. Like, I've had that experience. You know, you're standing on stage and you play the new song and you can just tell the audience eh, they're just they're not that interested and so you're you'd have to be a very clueless musician to not be aware of the impact that your music is having on the audience and like if you are, if you are the rolling stones or sting or whomever like you have the ability to play music that will bring people profound joy and it's it would be weird not to do that Amen. Now, just before I let you go, uh, you've turned your body into a billboard for veganism. You're, you're arguably one of the most uh, visible, if not the most visible vegan in America. Uh, my, my niece, Holly, by the way, thinks you're, you're the shit <laughs> and the tattoos and the whole thing. And so I'm just curious, maybe before we wrap, um, what do you want people to get out of Little Pine? Uh, well, I no longer own the restaurant. Basically, when the pandemic happened, I realized that restaurants are kind of like airplanes, like they should be operated by people who really know what they're doing. And I owned, when I owned Little Pine, I ran it as a form of activism. Um, 
the idea was to have like beautiful food in a beautiful setting to sort of advance veganism almost through attraction and not promotion. You know, like there was nothing in Little Pine that told people they were bad if they weren't vegan. You know, the idea was rather to sort of say like, this is what veganism is. And look, it's appealing. Like it's not didactic. So that was the goal. It could actually taste yummy. Yeah. And then if Little Pine made any money, I gave the money to charity. Um, To be fair, it was a little tiny restaurant, so it barely made any money. But so I shut it down. And then some friends who actually seem to know how to run restaurants. So I'm not involved with it anymore, but I am releasing this cookbook, the Little Pine cookbook. And it's, and I can say this with some objectivity, like it's beautifully photographed, beautifully designed. The recipes are wonderful. And the reason I say that with objectivity is I didn't photograph it. I didn't design it and I didn't make the recipes. So like (laughs) my name is on the book and I wrote it with my friend, Aaron, who really did all the heavy lifting. And so my name is on the book and my hope is, again, it advances veganism. You know, that's, that's my, my life's work. My day job is really trying to figure out how to basically help create a world where animals are simply allowed to live their own lives free from human interference. Like that's, if I had to point to a day job, that's, that's my day job. It's pretty evident in your Twitter feed. That's what you believe. I mean, if it was up to me, I mean, I almost feel bad, like on social media, like every now and then my manager reminds me, he's like, oh, just a reminder, you are a musician. And a lot of people kind of want you to post about music. And I'm like, yeah, but I only want to post animals. (laughs) Well, Moby, I I can't thank you for this time uh, enough. Um, So thank you deeply. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Uh, No, this was great. I mean, honestly, I feel like I should like venmo you some money for therapy (laughs) well if you're going to venmo anybody money i'd rather you venmo it to one of the uh, animal charities you support (laughs) okay um but no this was one it was really wonderful speaking with you thank you so much for having me on well well thank you very much and i want to of course thank you for your music thank you for your activism and i think really thank you for being so open and real and candid and uh you're welcome back anytime brother thank you so much well thanks again hopefully i'll talk to you soon bless you Well, there he is, the legendary Moby, and I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you did, why not share it with somebody that you uh, love, respect, and admire very much right now? Because frankly, I think this conversation will move many people. Uh, Most podcast apps have a uh, um, share button, so if you just uh, pull out your smartphone right now, click share and send it to those folks, I'm sure they will appreciate it. Also, don't forget, Moby's new book is out. It's called The Little Pine Cookbook, Modern Plant-Based Comfort. And it's a really fun read. Also, as a side note, I really loved uh, Moby's latest record. It's called Reprise. And I particularly loved his David Bowie cover of Heroes. Also want to say a special thank you to Anna Kamowski at Penguin Random House for helping to make this extraordinary conversation happen. And I also want to thank you, for making Category Pirates our a premium uh, paid newsletter, the number 10 business newsletter on Substack, the number one platform for uh, paid newsletters. So thank you so much. Recent letters include things like the big brand lie, how to have a legendary career, 
and the power of a point of view. And now, for the first time, you can get a 20% group discount on subscriptions of four or more. So go to Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com, and subscribe to Category Pirates. Now... We would like to thank my good friends at Malibu Milk. Did you know that a glass of almond milk is both bad for the environment because it takes up to one gallon of water to grow one almond? And it turns out almond milk is not that great for you because, frankly, it's mostly almond-flavored water. Malibu Milk, on the other hand, is the world's first whole plant organic flax milk created by a mom. Malibu Milk is the small, tasty change that makes a very big difference. Check out MalibuMilk.com today, milk with a Y, and get your uh, starter pack. You can also find Malibu Milk on Amazon.com and ask your local legendary food store if they're carrying Malibu Milk, and if they're not, ask them too. My friends at Hallow App are the world's first real relationship app. No ads, no bots, no likes, no trolls, no followers, no algorithms, no influencers, no censorship, no photo filters, no feed fatigue, no misinformation, and no echo chambers. Hallow App is where we hang out with our real friends and share our real lives in a real secure way. Check out HallowApp.com or search for Hallow App, H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P in the App Store on your phone. And don't forget Moby's new book. It's out. It's called The Little Pine Cookbook. And by the way, if you like vegan cooking and cookbooks, you're going to love one of the episodes we have coming up with none other than Joanne Molinaro, who's better known as the Korean vegan. She's got a new cookbook out. She's a blast. She's awesome. And she's coming up soon. Also, watch for a very special episode with International Peace Ambassador, India's own Pram Ruat coming up very soon. All right, I need to remind you that this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. Uh, if you're into marketing, why not check out our other podcast, Lockhead on Marketing? It's the uh, oddcast for people who dig marketing, category design, and many other wandering thoughts. We must warn you that this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced and edited by the GOAT. Jason DeFilippo, you can check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes. Oh, and by the way, we got an episode coming up with Jamie that's a stunner. He's got a new book out. Uh, show notes by GM Simon. Don't forget to listen to Moby Music. Take two podcasts and email us in the morning. And I want to say a very special thank you to all of our healthcare heroes, frontline heroes in California and the West Coast, our uh, firefighting heroes, and uh, our military families, particularly at this moment. Don't forget animals or people, too. The left lane is the passing lane. And uh, thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holmes, former CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie. We just ran out of time for you. Thanks for investing part of your life with me. Uh, please stay safe, stay legendary. Until we hang out again, follow your difference.